are rolling. All right. Uh, we have a doctorate of physical therapy, a doctor of physical therapy. Te Teddy, how do you say your last name? Wilsey. Wilsey. We yeah. have Teddy Wilsey on. Um, his Instagram, you guys probably know him from his Instagram. What's your Instagram handle again? What is it? Strength Coach Therapy. This guy has over half a million. What do you have? 600,000 followers on, yeah. on yeah. Instagram now. So too I think, many. Yeah. I can't imagine <laughs> the messages you get. I got a, maybe I messaged you or followed you. And, and I remember looking at your stuff and I just messaged you randomly. I was like, man, I don't know what it is, but you look strangely familiar and <laughs> sure as shit. I, 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 maybe it's the name. Maybe it's your face. I, I don't know what the hell it was. But it turns out that we both interned with Buddy Morris and James Smith. Hell yeah. It was, it, it, it's awesome. It's such a, such a small world. Um, when were you there? What years were you there? 2009. So he was, was there right before me, a year before me. Yeah. So I was there in the spring and I was exercise science at Pitt and uh, Anthony was a year ahead of me. Okay. So, so Anthony and Joe and Joe Grach and, and Anthony interned with Buddy and James that summer. And Joe and Joe's a good buddy of mine. I mean, he just, we, Joe and I just talked on the phone this past week. And, uh, and Joe was like, dude, this is like such an eye opening experience. You got to come meet these guys. And that's what I did. And I applied to be an intern. And James was like, yeah, come on board. And, you know, cause, but he's not going to talk to me when I'm applying. <laughs> so it was like, so, so James uh, brought me on, but then I hung out with buddy more than James and, and kind of the, you know, how buddy worked with the, the big guys and uh, James worked with the skill guys. And so I was there from at the pit, uh, you know, UPMC South side campus. I was there from freaking like five 30 or six in the morning until four or 5 PM every day for, for four months. And it was, it was uh, incredibly influential. And it was to this day, uh, you know, going through physical therapy school, having clinical instructors and all this stuff. I still say that that was the most kind of seminal learning experience and just eye opening. And I was green too, but I was like, man, it, it was just incredible. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when I was with Buddy and James, so I had emailed, have, have you ever heard this story before? About how I started off with yeah, them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I won't go yeah, too far. I heard into it, it. I heard it on a podcast. <laughs> so, so I, I had started off and I'm just a big Buddy Morris whore, right? Like I read all of his stuff and I was, it was, it was like, holy shit, the, the legend, Coach right? X. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when I got there, I mean, you know, I, I was, I was enamored by, you know, Buddy and, and the stuff he did. And he was very, very, rehab oriented when when i was there if there was a guy and he you know a guy was his shoulder was shrugged up when he was benching he goes mm -hmm. all right motherfucker get off the bench and he'd sit there and the rest of the session <laughs> we'd we'd we hear all right we're, we're, whatever rotator cuff yeah. and you know he'd, he'd progress yeah. them every single day and then he'd have his group of shoulder guys and he'd see some guys squatting it's all right motherfucker yeah. time to do that and and yeah. same fucking thing he'd have yeah. them do hip exercises whatever the hell it mm -hmm. was he was always troubleshooting and always plan being um, and, and that to me was, was so eye-opening because I came from just, uh, well, this is the session and maybe we'll just go lighter on the weight rather than making an adjustment. But then on the other hand, I had James and I didn't want to know anything about James, but then I ended up learning more about him. I was like, oh fuck. So I tried spending more and more time with James and I was, 
I was very, very wowed. And the difference between his style and Buddy's style was was very cool because we had Dion Lewis who couldn't touch his toes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had Dion was Dion was there when I was there, and he was he had left his school early in New Jersey mm-hmm. as a as a senior, and he was there training, and he was like, we were like, oh my god, look at this kid. Yeah. And he was just a freshman when you were there because I think he was a sophomore yeah. when yeah, I was. Yeah, he there. had just come in. Like it was mm-hmm. like you know he was like eighteen years old, hadn't played a hadn't played a down to college football yet. And and Dion couldn't step over the hurdles, couldn't do anything. And James is like, good, good job, good. I'm like, what do you mean good? He goes, <laughs> I said this guy can't fucking do anything. He goes, Mike, he just hurdled over an entire offensive line yesterday. Like yeah. I don't care if he could touch his toes or not. Like. But, he just proved that he can do it. And then at the same time, he'll have these guys loaded in season. They'll have four or 500 pounds on their, box, uh, on their back and squat to a max. And these guys will be asymmetrical when squatting. And he'll say, yeah. no, it's fine. I'm like, what? But yeah. it's, it's the two, Buddy versus James. And I didn't know which fucking path to walk down. And James like, fine. Don't worry about it. They're, they're you know, phenomenal. They're, they're good right, right, athletes, right. whatever. And, and Buddy's like, no, motherfucker, you can't fucking do that. So to, to have the two... What was your experience like with that? You know, I was, so you speak on Buddy's rehab prowess and there's always kind of the, I, I don't know the full background that Buddy had, but I know he had some hospital experience working in a rehab setting. And, um, you know, for me, I, I started off in exercise science because I love training and strength and conditioning and I wanted to be a physical therapist. So it felt like the right path to go. And to be quite frank, my grades weren't good enough to get into the pit rehab sciences program which was a blessing in disguise because that's like an application program. But instead I had to go exercise science, which, you know, uh, I think that path was life-changing for me. So I, so I'm in exercise science and then I, and I learn all the strength conditioning physiology and then I go and I'm learning form and then I go work with buddy and he's and buddy and James are both kind of painting this picture of there's a, there's a acceptable range of bell curve, if you will, of what's okay from a movement standpoint. And just because LaShawn McCoy has really tight hips or can't move that well laterally with a goblet dumbbell and underneath his chin, that doesn't mean he can't do it on the field. And am I going to try to change what he is. Am I going to change this athlete's anatomy or his skeletal structure or his, you know, anthropometrics was a big kind of thing that, that they would talk about. Like John Baldwin was there training too, when yeah. I was there and John Baldwin was, you know, he kind of flaked out in the NFL. He's kind of a, a nice guy, but a little bit of a knucklehead, but he, from an athletic standpoint, he was incredible. And he was another guy that was kind of stiff. And so, you know, you see all these, these athletes and, and they're at the highest level but they don't have these like FMS movement competencies and they don't pass the, the like super highly functional technical biomechanical strength, strength coach exam. And it's like, screw it. We don't need to change who these guys are. And so that for me was just so, so eye opening. And I think that was like my biggest single takeaway. And then I would say one B for, for kind of the big things for me from there was like, buddy did the rehab, like you said. So let's say we take an ACL and the ACL these days comprises, uh, I have a private physical therapy practice. We have, I have four physical therapists that work with me. I've mentored them over the years. We've been able to grow and about a third of what we see is ACLs, <laughs> but he saw their ACLs from like week eight on pretty much. Like once they had a quad and they were able to do even like non-running locomotive patterns, like just light skips and high knees and whatnot. They were with Buddy for a large part of their training. And so for me, that was kind of like, you know, Charlie Weingroff was, was saying rehab equals training at the same time. And, and, you know, he is what he is. But like, 
these, these, these different influences for me were like, wow, I can blend these disciplines. And that's what Buddy did. And for me, that was just, I mean, it was so eye-opening. It wasn't like these silos of like athletic training over here, strength coach over here. It was like, let's walk across the hallway and have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and that was, that was really eye-opening for me as well. I, I, I forgot about that. Um, buddy, buddy would do all the rehabs he would mm -hmm. do for as, and, and that's hamstrings. I, yeah. It, it didn't matter. Um, anyone was sled. injured, just go right over to buddy. He'd take everyone. Yeah. Sled drag sprints when you have a hamstring pull, because it decreases the angular velocity and decreases the eccentric demands on the hamstring. Like he had all of these high level ideas of how to rehabilitate, but then you put a, a pit shark or a sled drag, you know, that's the actual implementer, the intervention. It's like, wow, how did you, you know, whereas rehab guys, they don't know about that stuff. So they, so buddy's like using both sides of a brain and, and um, yeah. So that it was, I think he, I think he was way ahead of his time and continues to be. And even more so even huge influence in strength conditioning, but I don't think he realizes that that sort of thinking is, has, has a tremendous influence on where rehab, rehabilitation is going and all the, mm -hmm. all the hybrid physical therapists, rehab pros that are being hired in the NBA right now. And, you know, I, I think that that's a big kind of future uh, position that he's carved out. Yeah. When you need to, you need to give us a good buddy Morris story. You need to give us your favorite one. <laughs> I was, I was actually thinking about that before, before this podcast. Cause I was like, I know they're going to ask me, but um, I guess I, I think that mine is, you know, it's kind of a, a self a, a self-serving one, but I remember the first time that he let me warm the group up and he handed me, he handed me the whistle and uh, and you know, and I was, he was just like, yeah, just warm them up, you know, no preparation didn't, didn't. And it was like, that was like the third time he made eye contact with me and I'm there, you know, and I'm there for like eight or 10 weeks at the time. And I'm thinking like, man, this guy actually, you know, he, he's actually kind of paying attention. And it's like, cause, cause there were three other interns there at the time. And, and, uh, I was the first one that had the opportunity and I, I don't, I don't know that the other ones did, but for me, it was like, you know, all of this time that I'm trying to, to soak in what he's doing and, and help the other athletes and, and communicate with them kind of paid off. And so um, I think that that was my favorite like single moment uh, with Buddy. But, you know, I think the stories also like I remember like you just don't walk in that office sometimes. Like if Buddy and James are trying to like have some downtime, like you, you don't walk in, you just let them do their thing. And that was always like uh, I, I don't think I've ever. I'm the kind of guy that in my workplace, people sometimes walk on eggshells around me, not because I'm not because I'm a dick, but just because I'm busy and I have a lot going on. And I can sometimes have that personality that that buddy has to a certain extent of like, you know, um, don't I don't want to spend time on like, you know, kind of trivial things. And so for me, like I've told people the story about like walking on eggshells around buddy and they're like, you walked on eggshells around somebody. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I was also 22 at the time, but um Man, he was, uh, yeah, there's so many good stories from, from the buddy times. <laughs> oh, I, I guess there's a line of respect that people have, and I just routinely piss all over it. Um, buddy, <laughs> buddy, I, I was living in that office. Like, I, as far as I, can, I was concerned, like, there was a little piece of shit desk piece, like, in the fucking yeah. corner where no, uh -huh. that, was, that was fucking mine. I just hung out there. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be in there, but I was in there all the fucking time. <laughs> 
it was more just like athletes and like you know when like when it was busy and if there were uh-huh. times where he was in there kind of doing his thing you know so so buddy's buddy's lunch microwave sweet potato grilled chicken and chocolate chip cookies my favorite thing was how my favorite thing was how he would always eat like a chocolate chip cookie and that was like his you know his routine james it was it was oatmeal with like three scoops of muscle milk in it in the morning like you know the bowl of oatmeal while he's warming his guys up at 6 a.m uh just the the idiosyncrasies of of those guys uh were, were hilarious to me they're the funniest dynamic like of all the times mike telling me i mean i wish i would have got the opportunity to have seen it with with what you was mentioning about the difference between buddy and james in terms of like movement quality and considering you're a doctor of physical therapy do you lead are you like super anal then about you know if you see any kind of any kind of red flag in any movement are you jumping on it straight away or are you going more the james route and being like no it's okay you know probably not that big of a deal so I, you know, I, like I, I use the bell curve kind of idea to, to paint that picture. Um, I, I think that movement quality and obviously there's a lot of subjectivity to it. I think it's more important when you get under heavy load and you're in a position where there's high forces going through the body and you couldn't potentially be injured. Um, I think it's less important for people that are healthy too. If you have a small shift in your squat and I know that you've got some differences in internal rotation from one hip to the other, I'm not that worried about it as long as you're doing okay. Um, I think one of the distinction too was like Buddy worked with the guys that tended to have more of those injury and, and issues. And, you know, Buddy with his, his shoulder arthritis and his shoulder issues was a big shoulder guy. And so if somebody like you, the example you gave, Mike, was like, you know, if, if somebody's benching and they've got their shoulder in their ear, it's like, oh, let's get this guy a fucking lower trap, you know? And it's like, so he would, so I think that for me, like, there are times where I will intervene, but at the same time, I'm not going to take away that training stimulus because if they don't see that stimulus then they're not going to adapt and improve over time. Mm-hmm. So I see that I, I make a mental note. Uh, here's an example. I was working with a, a D one baseball player this past summer with a, a hamstring tear, uh, kind of a grade two, three, he had two PRP injections. And when he would do a single leg bridge on his left leg, which was the, the affected leg, his toe would immediately point out every single time. So what that told me was, you know, think about Charles Poliquin and some of those ideas that he would talk about with, uh, you know, toe, toe angle and hamstring activation. I remember Buddy talking about this too. What that told me was he wasn't recruiting his medial hamstring very much and maybe relying too much on that lateral hamstring, which was the one that he tore and the one that is most often tore when sprinting. So for him, I'm giving him some sort of medial load, some sort of adductor squeeze and working on those positions so that he can recruit those hamstrings more evenly. So then I'm intervening, but at the same time, we're still hitting our heavy RDL, single leg deadlifts, leg curl variations, Nordics, whatever it may be to build up and sprinting to woodway pacer runs, sled drag sprints to build up the resiliency in that hamstring so that he is ready to, to go perform in college. So I, I really try to draw the line, but I would say in the physical therapy world, I'm much more on the side of let athletes do what they do and i just don't want to get in their way what would you say is your biggest strength as as a pt like what 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 do you feel the most confident rehabbing hamstrings and acls shoulder i would say that high i'll I'll put it more in terms of the type of athlete like high performing athletes 
I think are something that I've been able to be exposed to a lot. And I am more skilled in working with than a lot of therapists are. So uh, we see, I would say between labrum, labrum injuries, hamstrings and ACLs, that's about half of my caseload. And I personally have had two shoulder labrum repairs and a shoulder cleanup scope and subacromial decompression all on the same side. So I've got some good personal history with rehab in the shoulder as well. So with, with hamstring rehabs, let's, let's, let's walk down that path. Mm-hmm. With the hamstring rehabs, what do you notice is, I, I, I get so many guys that, that pull hamstrings and they're nagging injuries for a long time, of course. but it, they resolve in a week if you do some things right. Um, what do you notice is some of the biggest causes for these hamstring issues? You know, the, the low-hanging fruit is always workload. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of, you know, training and playing in a state of fatigue um, or potentially overtraining in some ways um, or under recovering is really where a lot of athletes kind of fall in that, in that spectrum. But, um, you know, I, I think, and I'm sure you, you do a good job on, on this, but at the same time, you don't have access to your athletes all the time. They're doing different things they're pulled in different directions. But, you know, what we see is that there are architectural changes that go on with sprinting and with high-level supermaximal eccentrics, changes of pination angles of muscles of fascicle length. And when you detrain or when you over or when you are under recovered, those start to detrain and maladapt. And that's when we really see hamstring pulls kind of turn into this chronic type of thing. So it's, you know, I, I term it the injury re-injury cycle. And uh, athletes get into that because of the detraining that goes on with an injury in the first place, uh, which is also why it's so vital that we are able to train and get some sort of stimulus for adaptation during that rehabilitation process. So we're not Dalvin Cook coming out there after his ACL and pulls his hamstring or Christian McCaffrey coming out there, repulls his hamstring after having not having played for a year, you know, so that we aren't that athlete that, and, and it happens. I've had athletes that do that, you know, um, I think this is another kind of buddyism, but like nobody's batting, you know, nobody's batting a thousand percent. I mean, they're a hundred percent. Like we're all, we all are, are infallible or we all have our, you know, we're all fallible. We can all kind of fall into this trap at times. But I think that with hamstring specifically, it's, you really have to maintain this high, as Tim Gavitt uses the term in his research, like this high chronic workload so that you're ready for that, that acute dosage. So, someone's injured their hamstring due to overwork, overuse, one-on-one type shit, nothing too crazy, grade one, two. What are you doing with them upon arrival? I'm just letting it calm down at first, you know, calm shit down, build shit up. I mean, that's kind of the main, the main approach for rehab, but I, I also want them to be able to reload that tissue as quickly as possible and get blood flow to the area. Um, I'm a big fan. I mentioned this term earlier of non-running locomotives. Because the running pattern puts a lot of eccentric challenge and stress on the hamstrings. The running pattern opens up our hips in a different way. But if we're doing our skips and all of our different skip variations, if we, you know, our track and field people out there know a million different kinds of skips and, and gallops and, and I call them mini high knees, mini butt kickers. If we're doing all of these different patterns, we can still, and we're, and maybe even we're focusing on more of a vertical displacement or propulsion rather than horizontal because the hamstrings are going to be stretched much more from a horizontal 
for Polson's standpoint, if we're doing these different patterns, we can still get blood flow to the area. We can still get fast contractions and slowly grade up the eccentric demand on the hamstrings, which is what is the biggest challenge for them, you know, and I want to get athletes to, um, we use, we use, uh, force plate testing, handheld dynamometry testing, inline dynamometry testing. We use a lot of different data, um, try to not analyze so much that it paralyzes us, but we use some different numbers um, based on kind of what we see going on in the research to help us um, advise our athletes and make decisions about when they're fully ready, you know? And so um, those strength numbers in conjunction with kind of a uh, speed test that I like to do with them where they're hitting top numbers on a woodway and they're feeling good doing so, um, that is really what... Uh, helps us to determine the return to sport process for the hamstrings and then hopefully not re-injuring themselves. But even when they're ready, they're not at, they don't have that chronic workload up yet. Mm -hmm. They've, they've hit it from an acute standpoint, like sure. Like a football player, like, yeah, you can, you can go and have a really good practice, but that doesn't mean that you're ready for the exact workload that you were at before you haven't built that up yet. So that's a really tricky gray area for hamstrings. And that's why, you know, people go on pitch counts and rep counts, but sometimes the sport coach doesn't want to do that. Sometimes it just doesn't logistically work out that way. You know, we don't always have full control whether we're all in the same building or not. So uh, that can be tricky too. You mentioned using the woodway. Is that, is that a curve? Is that, <clears throat> I don't know. Yeah. So how do you like the curve, especially after hamstring injuries? Because Mike, <laughs> Mike's not a too big of a fan of it. I quite like it, especially for practicality-wise, but my guys are mostly hockey or skiers, so they don't mm -hmm. really run too fast. So I don't really ever see any issue. Do you ever – what's your opinion about with the foot strikes and – You know, the curve's a hamstring killer. It is It is harder on the hamstring sometimes than flat ground running. Yeah, and I don't like it for that standpoint because people can get hurt on it and it does not recreate the, the same ground reaction forces as running. You don't get a hard heel strike, which is what you really, or as you start to get to full speed kind of midfoot, but you don't get the same ground reaction force on a curve. That being said, you do get similar hamstring lengthening. And so that's where I think that, you know, um, for that specific uh, application, it does have some good, some good carryover. And for me, it's, it's also a practicality thing. Even though we have 6,000 square feet and 40 yards wall to wall, that's not nearly enough to get a D1 college athlete that's hitting mid 18s in terms of top speed. That's not nearly enough to get them uh, ready to, to go back out on the field. Well said. Well said. I like that. <laughs> I like that. So you'll, you have no problem doing tempos on it then. You won't do max velocity, but you'll do tempos. Oh, no, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do max below. Okay. But I start off with what I call pacers, which are a step above tempos. Cause if we think of tempos in that kind of Charlie Francis template or James and a lot of what James does, we're looking at kind of 70% and down, you know, but, but for the tempos, for the pacers that I do, I want them a little bit higher than that because I want them to start to get similar lengthening of the hamstring and similar eccentric contractions. And then the speed of the contraction via the angular velocity of the lengthening of the, the knee joint or the opening, you know, the extending of the knee joint, that's during that kind of that just before heel strike, uh, that's where we really see those hamstring injuries happen. And that's going to, you know, cause on a tempo run, we want to get to max velo mechanics, but just not max velo speed. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a, it's a, 
a step above a tempo run. Now, what cues are you telling them to do when they're trying to increase velocity on that curve? Run faster. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like to over cue them, man. You know, it's it's, these, these athletes know how to do stuff. You know how Mm -hmm. I teach the deadlift pick that up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, but it, if I need to teach, I will. And, you know, that's where kind of um, being a, a strength enthusiast myself helps too. And, and just, I, I love diving into the teaching form and, but they, most athletes don't give a shit about it. And so if they look good enough, I'm okay with it. Um, one thing I do look at with hamstrings from a video analysis standpoint is a low heel recovery. Mm-hmm. So if you see that low heel recovery, and they're not getting that that quick transition into a concentric hamstring contraction and knee flexion, what's going to happen is they're going to overstride because they don't get that heel up close enough to their butt. So when their leg starts to swing through, they're already in more knee extension and a longer stride length than they should be. And that low heel recovery is vital to fix. When we talk about, Brooker, going back to your question about mechanics, Now, I'm not going to cue them. I'm not going to tell somebody, do something a little bit different when you're sprinting 17 miles an hour. But I'm going to take that mental note. And if the athlete is mentally resilient enough to not overthink it, I will share that information with them in a way to to try to work with them on that. But, um, you know, I use that as a a method of progression too. If I see a low heel recovery, I'm just going to keep working. We're going to keep working. So we have a decent amount of PTs that listen to our our podcast. Uh, it, clearly, you didn't learn this in school. No. Where, where there's there's nothing that PT there's nothing that PT school is going to teach you that's so far been mentioned on this fucking podcast. <laughs> what? Where do you go to learn this? Because I I have tons of PTs that message me that love working with athletes. That I don't want to say they're not qualified to work with athletes, but. They don't know, you know, they're fresh out of PT school. They think like, oh, we got the world by the balls. We can do all this. And then you you do all your internships or externships and you don't know fucking anything. So where do you go to learn all the sports mechanics, where all the form on running, all the, all the training theory, what do you do for that? It's a, it's a lifetime of it, man. It's a, it's, you know, it's, it's a lifestyle. Like you said, of, of spending time reading. There's no, I don't, this is, this is where we get into the, you know, the kind of the, I said that sometimes interns and people can walk on eggshells around me. Cause like, if you're not willing to inform yourself and you're not there, like, what do you think I did when I was interning with Buddy and James? I went home and read that night. Like not, not because I'm a dork and because I don't like, you know, hanging out with friends or watching TV or whatever I do, but like, and I don't honestly do it as much as I used to because I'm, I'm closer to what my peak will be in terms of my knowledge acquisition standpoint. But like early on, I just knew there was so much I wanted to learn. So like, can I, can I read everything that Stu McMillan and, and listen to everything that Stu McMillan has ever put out? Can I fully understand what Dan Pfaff does, how he, how he teaches his, his sprint mechanics, how he coaches his athletes? Can I, you know, can, can I just look at every single Q&A that Coach X or the Thinker has ever done on Elite FTS and just, just diving uh, for the listeners, that's, that's Buddy and James. That, those are their names on Elite FTS. Like, I just love learning about this stuff and diving into it and I get young PTs that message me all the time and they want to know what the best way is to get more into strength conditioning. And they're like, should I take the CSCS? I'm like, yeah, that's great. But that's one textbook. You studied one book, you know, is 
can I take this one course? Like, yeah, that's great. You spent two days learning from, you know, one person. So it's just a long, it's a long process of acquisition of knowledge and physical therapy is a great profession, but we help people walk after strokes and spinal cord injuries. We help people with multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's elongate their function and their, their ability to enjoy life. But we do so many different things that if you want to go the sports performance route, you got to educate yourself because it's a broad degree that's designed to prepare people to go on a lot of different paths. So after Buddy and James, then you went to grad school. Took, took three and a half years off, almost four years off. Okay. So go through, go through after Buddy and James till now, like career wise. So I was, so I did, uh, my wife now, uh, I had met her around that time, girlfriend at the time. I was, I decided I did not want to go the college strength and conditioning route. I love team sports, but I just, I could not bring myself to start applying for GAs in Southeast Missouri, like where Joe Gretchen ended up. Or, um, you know, I had a buddy who he's now been with the Bills for a few years, but uh, he bounced around to, I think, like seven places in 10 years. And, you know, uh, we all we all in the in the industry know people like that. The people that, the guys that Kier's trying to help out through everything he does with, you know, Strength Coach Network. So like, I knew I didn't want to go that route. So I, I went private strength conditioning. I did some personal training. I bartended for the first year just to get enough cash. So I did a lot of different things, moved back to, to home area. Uh, the DC area had a couple of roommates, good buddies of mine. And I did that for a uh, little over three years. And then I applied to physical therapy school. So um so I walk into physical therapy school, uh, age 26, and I've already been training and been reading and been writing guest blogs on, you know, people's, people's websites and going to CVAS conference and, and all this stuff. And so like at that point, I'm in a totally different place than the majority of physical therapy students. So these kids that are like, they were like bio majors and then they're in gross anatomy and they're like trying to like, remember like the serratus, what, which one is that? And I'm like telling them about protraction and upward rotation of the scapula and so I think that um my path was was beneficial for me because I was immature as a 22 year old and by the time I got to PT school I already had this like this knowledge base and I was able to build from there so I did that and um out of school for one year I worked at an insurance practice great experience for me I worked with uh, about 70 percent of our caseload was spine patients uh, the practice was owned by two physiatrists. So uh, guys that were doing a lot of cortisone injections, they were seeing, we were seeing people after spinal fusion surgeries, a lot of chronic pain, a lot of like learning how to talk to people and help them find joy in life and help them understand what reasonable goals are. And um, pain science became a big interest of mine and learning about kind of the, the, the mental side of pain and how we can affect people and help people from that standpoint. And I uh, did that for a year. And then I, I joined up with Healthy Baller. They had only been open for a year. Um, Healthy Baller is a strength and conditioning gym in the DC area. And I was like, hey guys, what if I put a table in the back of the weight room there? Um, they needed, they were looking for a strength and conditioning coach at the time. So I started off hybrid coaching and physical therapy practicing. And after about eight months, I was to a point where I was a full-time physical therapist. 
after about a year and a half, I hired the first physical therapist who's still with me. And um, I've been there since August of 16. So it's been, uh, you know, almost five and a half years. That's awesome. That is awesome. Very cool. That's now, very cool. yeah, dude, that's, that's, I, I genuinely believe uh, PTs, personal trainers, they, we should all take a similar path. Um, we need to do way more internships. Yeah. Way, way, way more internships in what we do. Uh, my, my school, <clears throat> uh, William Patterson, when I was there, our internship was only 150 hours. So when I went to Buddy and James, I went for like 1,000, 1,500 hours, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, and we have, we have interns coming from there now. It's only, it's only 200 hours. They bumped it up. We have a neighboring school, Montclair. They do 500 hours. And even the 500 hours, like, it's great. They're there for, you know, 12 weeks, uh, you know, a bunch of hours a week. It's awesome. But I don't think it's enough. Right. I, I, right. I don't think it's enough. I think those three years you spent learning and doing and then going to school, that's exactly what you needed to do. Mm -hmm. Those are the prerequisites that you need because you need to be competent going into something that you, you're trying to become a fucking expert in. Right. Right. You know, yeah, I, it's, it's funny you mentioned the numbers too. Like, I remember with Buddy and James, it was like, I needed, I don't even remember what the number of hours that I needed, but it was, you know, it was not, I put in way more than I needed. It was like, I don't know, 300 or something. Yeah, I probably hit that in the first two months. But it was like, once I was there and I was in the building, I'm like, I'm not going to not come in here. This is a incredible opportunity. So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, you can only do that when you're young. You can only afford yeah. to do that when you're young. You only, you, you, it's the only time you have the time to do that. And so that's, that's what I encourage all of the young practitioners, whether you're a coach, uh, a future therapist, whatever you want to do. I'm like, go learn from people and, you know, don't just, don't just reach out to them on Instagram and tell them you want to pick their brain on a phone call. Like, like find local people and develop a face-to-face -face relationship if you can. Okay. And, uh, you know, don't get butthurt if, if they don't take you aside the first few days and teach you everything. Like you just, you got to kind of earn your, earn the right to be there. Don't get in the way of anybody in the gym. Uh, you know, watch, watch what everybody's doing. Start cleaning up, anticipate needs and build that way. Like be a good intern. <laughs> it's also nice that you, I mean, so you said that you're still working out of this same gym as that you first walked into. I mean, that was also very smart from you on a business perspective, right? Because you've got potential clients walking around, you over in you over deliver, you can chuck in free sessions until they mm -hmm. trust you enough. And then you can just build up. And I mean, that to me is the smartest way to go about it. You know, you're putting yourself into a position where you can be way more lucky. Um, yeah. At the beginning, we mentioned that you have a big social media account. Um, was that something that you started building already? back then or is that a relatively new thing like how is all so, of this filtering together yeah so i started the social media right when i left that insurance physical therapy practice um and when i say insurance versus what i'm doing now is cash physical therapy just kind of the distinction there is we don't accept insurance so we bill out of network and it's more like a you a fee for service you pay us for your time but we are also the most affordable cash physical therapy in the yeah. dc area and the reason that we do that is because we work with athletes who need to see us for a lot of visits and i was like that was kind of the the overall model um you know 
there are a lot of people that do kind of concierge cast physical therapy. They charge $200 an hour. And, uh, it's, that wasn't my, that wasn't my gig. I was like, if I can make a living, I'm good. I don't need to, I don't need to do that and see 14 people a week and golf twice a week. So, um, yeah, no, the, the decision to, so Brooke, the decision to go with the gym was like, I don't want to do this alone. I'm, as you guys can probably tell, I'm very passionate about strength and conditioning and performance. I love business. I like the challenge of it, but I don't want to like have that be my end all be all. So if I can pair up with a group of guys that are already in the strength and conditioning world, and they've already built um, these relationships with high schools in the area, and they already have a lot of college, like we are slammed this week because it's Thanksgiving and we get all our college athletes that come back. And we, you know, I get to see some of these kids from the time they're 14 until they're 22. It's so cool. And so I was like, if I'm not going to be in the team environment, the next best thing is being in a really good community environment. And, you know, I saw gyms like DeFranco and, and you know, these, I mean, obviously your, your relationship there, like I saw these places and I was like, this is, you know, Cressy and, and IFAS with Robertson and Bill Hartman. They had the PT thing going with, and I was like, that's what I want to do. And I, I knew I wanted to do that in 2010, but I just didn't end up starting it until 16, you know, or even earlier than that, but. Yeah. So the best trainers, typically the most knowledgeable trainers start becoming physical therapists and the best physical therapists typically start becoming trainers. <laughs> um, true. And you're in someone else's house that does personal training, correct? Yeah. So that's a slippery slope. Now, all of a sudden, your athletes that have graduated from physical therapy, you're now competing for business with that same gym. How is that relationship? It is money fixes everything, you know? <laughs> uh, so, so the fact that we all can make a living and we all contribute and we're all busy enough that we can feel comfortable referring back and forth means that it works. If we were scrounging for the next client and the gym was empty all day and one of the strength coaches referred me their athlete with a chronic hamstring and then I rehabbed that guy for six months, <laughs> you know, that would be a problem. But we have a really strong relationship and that's the only way that it can work is having a good relationship and we have fun together outside of the workplace too. Um, not as much over the past freaking year and a half because of COVID and whatnot. And, you know, it's, um, it's been a real wild ride trying to figure out how to operate and different, you know, as, as everything changes there from a business owner standpoint and making sure all of our clients and customers and patients feel comfortable. And that's been a challenge and, you know, but um, in terms of the kind of, turf war of rehab versus training we do really well there and it's we 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 do staff education every week we meet together we talk shop and all of those things are essential to being able to delineate when somebody is appropriate for one or another and we also send each other referrals like if somebody comes to me and they have a chronic hamstring but they're good with everything I'm like, you know, I have a really good coach who's been doing this for 12 years. I think you would do great with him. 
We're going to have a 10 minute, we've been working together for five years. We're going to have a five minute conversation, 10 minute conversation about you and what I'm seeing. And they're going to do fantastic, you know, and we're able to do that. And I have good coaches that I can work and trust, work with and trust, you know, mm-hmm. Blair O'Donovan is one of the founders of Healthy Baller. He was the uh, director of performance for the Wizards for a couple of years. Um, Matt Boyd is the other co-founder and Matt's been the director of performance at a high level high school lacrosse program for the past like six or seven years. I mean, these are guys and we're all, you know, we explain this to like our customers sometimes when we talk about like the competition and the strength and conditioning and how many more gyms there are now than doing this model than there were 15 years ago. I'm like, we are career guys. We are guys in our thirties. We, some of us are in our forties. Like we, we have been doing this for a long time. And we work together very well. And um, I think that I think that that's the biggest single thing is that we have enough to go around. Yeah. Yeah. It's so so when you by the way, what what are your what are your rates? You say you're the most affordable uh, physical therapist in the area. What, what, what are your rates for something like that? So we do. So we do 150 for a single session. And then 120 for a package of sessions that we sell in eight session packages. So it comes out to about eight, nine sixty a month. So if you're doing an ACL rehab, it's a little, it's a little under a thousand a month. When you think about the fact that a surgery and your anesthesia bills, even when you have insurance, can cost four or five grand, it's not that much more to spend your last four months of rehab coming to a place like us and put and reducing your likelihood of re-injury from 30 or 40% to five to 10%, mm-hmm. you know? And so we have to make the sale. We have to make the, the, we have to have the conversation sometimes, but um, it has honestly surprised me how well we've done. I would have never thought five years ago that I've had four, I would have gone on to hire four more physical therapists and built two offices within the facility. And, you know, I never would have thought that, but um, I think there's a need out there. There's a lot of people, like, like we said earlier, I didn't learn any of this crap in physical therapy school. And so the physical therapists that are out there at your average practice don't know how to help these athletes. So when these athletes, they, they come to you, they'll, they'll give you a credit card or they'll give you a, a straight up ca- uh, check or straight up cash. Do you give them straight? We only accept cash, straight cash, homie. We don't pay tax. We don't pay. We don't pay taxes. <laughs> you so, know. So when when they come in, do you give them any kind of receipt that they can then give to their insurance company, yeah. and yeah. they get reimbursed? But yeah. you're just not dealing with any of the reimbursement. Correct. Yeah, we just put their card on file, and it's super easy. And um, we give them, we also accept HSA and FSA funds. So pro tip for anybody out there trying to be an adult one day, if you get a health savings account, you can get pre-tax money that's put aside that you can then spend on your healthcare. So you can be proactive and be a decision maker in the driver's seat of what kind of provider that you go to. So if there's an awesome physical therapist that's out of network, you can use pre-tax money on that experience. And um so we accept HSA, FSA, and then we give people reimbursement. And depending on your insurance, you might get 70% back or your insurance might tell you kick rocks until you hit your $10,000 deductible, you know? So everybody's, everybody's a little bit different in terms of their, uh, their plans. One of the, one of the hard things about the physical therapy business model is turnover. And I mean, especially if you're a good one and you're not dragging people over for a year and just 
billing them for no reason. Right. How are you keeping up a high turnover, especially if you have so many coaches? How do you find your clients? You know, we've been, so Instagram's big. Instagram is a big, it's a walking reputation for me. I would not have been able to build this without Instagram. Um, I started creating that content. I, I don't think I really answered your question before, but I started creating content right when I got to Healthy Baller. And part of it was because I was a strength coach. I was working with high school kids. I had blocks in the middle of the day where there was nothing going on. And I just, and by that time I'm 30 years old, I've been in this field long enough that I feel like I have my thoughts together and I can start to put together content right time, right place in terms of growing on Instagram and hitting the, however the hell the Instagram algorithms work. I hit them for a while. I don't anymore, but I don't think any of us do. I know, I know you were talking about that recently. I'm the same way. Um, I also don't really care. don't really post nearly as much and whatever, but, uh, and the reason I don't care is because we've been able to build this brick and mortar practice, something that in 10 years from now, when the kids are like, Oh, Instagram, you, you were on that. You, I heard you were, you were famous on Instagram. Like, yeah. When people don't know what Instagram is in 10 years, I'll still have a brick and mortar practice, hopefully God willing. So, um, we've just, it's community, man. It's, it's, we've built it in the community. We're in the Washington DC area, which is extremely population dense and tons of athletes in this area. And we've also, this is the biggest surprise to me. We have orthopedists who have physical therapy practices in their building that send to us because they know that they're going to get better results of their surgeries by sending their people to us. And they know that their hams, the hamstring pull that they see that like, what the hell is that ortho going to do with a hamstring pull unless they do PRP or something. But, you know, they know that like those soft tissue injuries and that sort of thing better off with us. So that's been a big relationship builder. I mentioned like objective data that we use force plates and dynamometry. We have good templates that we send to our orthopedists and we report on kind of how they're doing. We give them kind of a subjective and an objective opinion of, of what's going on. And we try to stay communicative with them, which I think helps the orthopedists uh, to better understand our thought processes. And they've been, we've got a few different docs that have been instrumental in helping our practice grow. Uh, so all of these, and, and these days, now that we've been, physical therapy has been going for five and a half years. The gym itself has been open for almost eight or almost seven um, people hear about us from multiple things, you know, my neighbor down the street or, or somebody, I somebody at school. And, you know, so it's, um, we, we built a niche, you know, healthy baller speaks to a only, only one type of person. We, in the days of, of information and social media, like you got, people need to know what you're saying, who you're talking to really quickly. And I think that, um, we kind of got lucky in terms of all of the different pieces putting all in terms of putting all these different pieces together. Dude, that's, that's terrific. Yeah, sure. Are you leveraging Instagram in other ways? Are you also, do you have other income streams for the business? Like do you sell like your templates or programming or even consultations to people just on the telephone? So I used to do consults for years. Um, I don't anymore just because I don't have the, uh, the time for it. Um, and I truthfully, I much prefer to add a couple hours of in-person than do a couple more hours on a, on a zoom call. Yeah, sure. Um, I actually stopped any doing, day of the week. Yeah. I actually stopped doing all online stuff after we reopened for COVID or, you know, once we kind of got back 
going post, obviously we're not done with COVID, but post the, the worst part of it. Um, the biggest thing that I leverage with it, I would say is the relationships that I've built, the opportunities that I've had. You know, I, I was lucky enough to speak at the Notre Dame Sports Performance Seminar two years ago. Um, I've done a number of courses and speaking engagements um, throughout the years, and I never would have had those opportunities in such a early part of my career had I not had the social media exposure and also the practice of talking and speaking in front of a camera and then that translating to in front of people. Um, and then I do have an online training platform called Citizen Athletics. And we do a, we update the training every four weeks, uh, new block, it's undulating volume and intensity throughout those four weeks. It's a kind of a basic strength training template, but uh, we kind of incorporate some physical therapy types stuff, if you will, to, to try to keep people healthy. So I've got a platform. So I've got a training group with that too, which um, is a, is a kind of a side monetization thing. That's see, good, man. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I'm bro. I'm so impressed with you. It, it really, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so fucking well, thank awesome. You, thank you. <laughs> and, and to also, I, I don't know, to, to understand and realize like the, the goal Brooker and I go back and forth about this all the time about about the issues with brick and mortar and how we need to be able to scale and the scalability happens with the internet. Yeah, but I absolutely. mean, to, to hear someone with all the scalability power say, thank God I have this brick and mortar, you know, it's and, and everything's going to the brick and mortar. I mean, it's I, I don't know. It's 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 a relief, but it's also it's adding a shitload of confusion to us as as well. <laughs> I, I know for me anyway, because. It's I know Instagram goes out. Zuckerberg decides to fuck everyone. I have a business. Right. You know, like all it takes right. is for the fucking lights to go out for a cup for a week. Yeah. My business is fine. Instagram imagine, goes out for a week and people are fucked. Imagine some crazy shit happens and somebody uses Instagram to like be a serial killer and then nobody likes it anymore and it grows out, you know, and then like next thing you know, everybody's on TikTok and some other new social media that we don't even know what the hell the name of it is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, I, you got a kid on the way. I got a newborn kid right now. Like I, I got bigger fish to fry than, than social media and it's social media is huge and it's important and don't get me wrong it's life-changing for me. I would not have the reach that I do and the, the brick and mortar that I do without it. But now that I've been able to use that to build something else, I think that the brick and mortar and the Google reviews, when people Google physical sports, physical therapy, and they, and they're a couple miles from me. And, and I think that like the, the in-person stuff is not only is it stronger, it feels more, you know, my citizen athletics, the, we from COVID, I mean, we had huge swings, thousands of dollars. I have a partner for that, Sam Spinelli, who's an awesome, very comparable background and, and knowledge base to, to what I do. Um, by the way, if, you, if you're not familiar with him, you should look him up. Um, but Sam and I, we've seen tremendous swings in our citizen athletics platform, swings that we would not be able to handle financially if we didn't. Sam owns a gym in uh, Kelowna uh, in British Columbia. And, uh, you know, if we, if we didn't see, if, if we didn't have our other stuff too, that would be challenging for us to handle. And also, man, like I saw a post on Instagram recently and it was like, I think it was 
Luca Hovis, Hovis, sir, have you pronounced his last name? He was like, there are coaches who post what they, I'm going to, I'm slaughtering it already. There are coaches who post what they coach on the internet. And then there are coaches that coach on the internet. You know what I mean? It's like, you're not going to grow, but so much if next thing you know, you've spent two years just posting on the internet and filming yourself working out. It's like, you got to, you got to keep working with people and keep growing from that standpoint. There, unless you're smoking hot. Well, there's that. Yeah. Unless I got, <laughs> well, unless I got huge fake boobs. You so know, the, the quote is there's internet coaches and then there's coaches that put things on the internet. Thank you. Thank you. There are internet coaches and then there are coaches that put things on the internet. And I think we all know, I think the informed people know who the internet coaches are and who the coaches are that just put things on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, dude, these, I, and this is what, this is what people and people like Kier have, have talked to me about this saying that I have a responsibility to become more popular on Instagram and on social media to take it away from the frauds because we are actually the ones doing the training, you know? So I, I go back and forth with this. Like, what is, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? What is the right thing to do to, to do? I don't, I don't know. I don't know the fuck. So I just keep doing what the fuck I'm doing. If something yeah. happens, something's ha something happens. Yeah. You know, that's, that's how I feel too. Honestly, like because of the following that I've built, I feel like I have a responsibility to be a reasonable opinionated person out there. Who's not, dogmatic who's not just trying to get fucking clicks and you know yeah there's there's a lot of crap out there and we don't even need to go down and name names but um i get fired up by it i get really fired up by it and i feel like there are a lot of young coaches that um despite the age of information they are getting so much misinformation that they're just getting pulled in different directions yeah i so i had made a post about um it was it was a really condescending I, I do a lot of condescending posts lately about uh, cold uh, i can relate <laughs> about colon cleansing and it was like this weird weird picture of like a, a bloated i uh, can't even see it with my fucking background oh i'm not gonna do it anyway <laughs> of a bloated stomach and then like poop and it said many people uh aren't in fact uh, many people aren't fat but they have between 10 to 20 pounds of toxic toxins sitting in their colon cleansing the colon once or twice a year is important to eliminate toxins that cause weight gain digestive issues bloating constipation and ibs uh here is what you can do so like stick a tube up your ass shove water and let it go out right i posted that with the caption saying i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure majority of people are just fucking fat no <laughs> amount of no amount of ass cleansing will likely change that right but i got a lot of people hitting me up saying hey where can i get a colon cleanse like dude did you even read my caption so yeah. <laughs> when, when I, when I went back, went back to school and I started doing the acupuncture and stuff, uh, and I have a look about me too, right? Like I had the beard, I got the long hair, I'm barefoot everywhere. You know, like I talk about eating whole foods and stuff. I started getting a, a, almost like a cultish following of people. And, and I do sauna a lot and I talk about breathing and I'm out in nature, like of of people thinking that I was going to be a guru and people started tagging me saying like, Hey, guru Gordango said this, like, yo, motherfuckers, like I'm not about that yeah. life. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I very easily could have dove down that, 
that very strange person uh, yep. path and and gotten a ton of followers. And I I ain't fucking living like that. Like just become a fraud. Like one of these idiots just talking about like, oh, well, you know, the reason why you're doing this is because of that. Like right, being 100. Right, right. If I gave 100 percent certainty on certain things and they were outrageous as fuck. And I said, trust me, I know Chinese medicine. People would be like, you know, he's fucking right. It's a 3000 year old mm -hmm. medicine and we know what to do with that. Like, no, it's fucking, you know, like I and so many people are capitalizing on it and just crushing well, souls. Think critical thinking is not an innate skill because we want to trust and we want answers and we feel better understanding that A plus B equals C. And so, you know, you hit the nail on the head when you said I could pretend like I have 100% certainty. Uh, I'm a clinical instructor for physical therapists. And one of the first papers that I like to give my students is about managing uncertainty. And that's a big thing that I talk about on my Instagram and on most social media that I do and, and uh, speaking that I do, you know? And so, yeah, there's so many people out there that they, I feel the same way. I'm like, I could be a freaking guru. I could pretend like I got it all figured out and, but it's not, that's not the ticket, you know? And so it, that is, that is the path that a lot of people are taking on not a lot of people, but some people are taking on social media and unfortunately their voices get amplified. Mm -hmm. And they sell more because like you said, they're taking away this risk of uncertainty from people. But yeah, you know, <clears throat> if you think about, you've obviously done it with sort of kind of like an innocence, more of just being involved in the process, not really knowing the outcome because you were early in the game. If you would start it all now and, try and trying to get somewhere and get something out of it and like comparing yourself to some of these other guys, I wonder if you would have the same success. Probably not, but yeah. I don't know. It's hard no, to mean, know, right? It's hard to know what also captures you because we can all see like communication is only 25% verbal. So if you can pick up, like you think someone's full of shit right. on the camera and it's very hard to do, then you're going to lose a lot of credibility already. Eh? So yeah. It's a tough. It's a tough one. It's a tough one to manage. Because also for us, Mike, it's only about the money. We don't care. We don't want to be famous. We don't want any. We, we don't want. Any, we, we don't want anything. That's the only thing that we're attracted to is that. But there's so much bullshit that has to go with it too. I mean, how many people do you get hit up by day by day? You spend the time to reply to them. They've not even read what you've said, and they're asking some other stupid question or. You know, it's, it's also, it's like, I don't know, there's so much noise going on there. So I guess it can be overwhelming. And then when you hear about Ben Patrick replying back to everybody that rides him, I mean, you think, how many hours is that alone, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. No free lunch with this stuff. I mean, you have to pay your dues with it. I mean, yeah. how many years has ben, it took you ben to Patrick's get to Ben Patrick's the place? knees, he's the knees over toes guy, huh? Yeah, yep. knees over yeah. toes. He's yeah. paying somebody to reply to people. There's no way in hell he's replying to people. No, 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 no. Can it? Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe now. now. But maybe now. Bro, I am telling you, when he had quarter million followers, I started following him. Someone reached out to me that's been following me for years. Uh, I give him a shout out. I think it's uh, Hayward. Hayward, Hayward Boyce. Do you, do you know, do either of you know him? Does he follow you guys? Um, I don't know. He's been following me for years. He says, yo, check out this, this knees over toes guys. Let me, let me know what you think. I'm like, okay, whatever. He had like 40,000 followers. I DM'd him. He goes, Mike, good angle. Holy shit. 
fucking box jump guy. I know who you are. Yeah. So, so, he, and we started talking and he says, yeah, dude, I respond to all my DMs. That was with 40,000. Then he said, he came on our show when he had, like, I did I, that. I did that when I got out until like 120. Sorry. But yeah, I he, did that early on. He said what, even when he was on our show, he had what a quarter million followers when he was on our show, Brooker. Yep. And he said he was still, he was still replying to all the DMs and I would DM him and he would get back to me. Like, I don't, I don't know why I'm an idiot. I don't, I don't text message. I just DM people. So he would always, 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 always get back to me. Always within 24 hours. Wasn't full of shit. He told us he was on his, on Instagram, 60 hours a week. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was high 60 hours mm -hmm. per week. Which, what, and how many followers does he have now? Knees over toe. He's had 837,000 followers. Holy shit. So, I posted, I came at him a little bit in a meme that I did. Oh, yeah. And man, I got some loyal, loyal knees over toes ATG people coming at me. You know? <laughs> I, can't believe, I can't believe you do this. I'm unfollowing you. You know, it's like, I, like, I give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Ben is another one who was a who is a be all end all. This will this will cure your knee pain. Mm -hmm. uh, I know a lot of people that it just hasn't helped. Um, we Zero had on, injuries experienced. Oh, is that what it says? Somebody told me that that was a claim of his. No, right. well, it's not. Well, it's not on here now. Um, yeah. But one thing I will say, we had we had Jake Tura on, and and Jake was telling me that uh, he gets a lot of people, he's got like 20,000 followers or something like that, that he has a lot of people that are knees over toes rejects, right? People that didn't work for him. But that being said, Ben has put together a widely generic knee program that helps more people than the outliers that it hurts, right? I, and I, I mean, things are only so scalable to the point where it's universal. Very, very few things are universal remote, right? Even the universal remote isn't universal. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I understand the people's frustrations with it and maybe with the former marketing that he may have had with it and saying like, oh, you know, everyone should be able to do this. This will be better for everyone's knees. I'm telling you right now, Kevin Love cannot do a knees over toes and <laughs> should not do anything knees over toes because it's just too much. He's 34 years old. He's got old fucking knees. He's had a yeah. patellar realignment. Like this just isn't conducive for longevity in the NBA at this yeah. juncture. You know what I mean? It's just, it just is what it is. But that's, I'm sure Ben Patrick has helped a lot more people's knees than I have. So that's the other thing that Brooker and I talk about too. Like we'd be helping substantially more people by marketing ourselves and getting bigger on social media and doing all these things and putting together a relatively safe generic program that everyone can do if we knew how to fucking market. So like I, I go back and forth with all this shit too. It sucks. Yeah. You know, I feel like I, where I'm at, like I have a responsibility to not market myself that way. Absolutely. And, and I, I don't need to. And I just, I don't think I could ever, and I don't mean to say that Ben is, you know, the devil reincarnated, but like, I, I just don't think I could ever market myself the way that he does. Mm -hmm. um, I also have a, a higher credential than he does as well, which would just be kind of using that in a appeal to authority bias type of way. 
Um, and it's just not kind of my cup of tea, you know? And so I, I'm sure that I've, I've heard from other people that I trust and respect that he, uh, is a good coach and whatnot, but I, um, yeah, I, you know, he's definitely one of those people for me that falls into that category of like, mm -hmm. there's, you know, I've, I have a hashtag Teddy talks BS. I do a <laughs> Teddy talks. I do a Teddy talks hashtag for a lot of different body parts, like knees, hips, shoulders. And I have one called Teddy talks BS. And, uh, you know, there's, I've posted a bullshit meter before about, and, you know, things that are high on the bullshit meter are absolutist claims, guarantees, yep. things that are low yep. on the bullshit meter are if you pick up any paper and you read it and people talk about, you know, this may be contributing to that, not like yeah. this is that. And, uh, that's, that's scientific rigor and that's how we understand things to be true. And, um, if we did not have that type of approach to, inf to information, we would have so much bad information prevailing for so long. You're speaking like a very logical pe person, but <laughs> people in order right. to buy things right. are right. emotional. Sure. Absolutely. They're not, they're not logical. It's and an emotional. Uncertainty. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. So if you speak with a dose of uncertainty and you say, well, the probability of X, Y, and Z is this or that. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear, right. no, it's going to happen. Like mm -hmm. if it, you, you talk to doctors and doctors say, well, you know, one out of every thousand surgeries, someone doesn't wake up, you know, and this, but yeah. that's one out of every thousand. You know what I mean? Like if they say <laughs> something like that, um, rather than saying, no, you're waking up from the surgery. Again, they're going to say, they'll say that, right? To give someone to get, but the, the bottom line is if you say, if you say, yes, you're waking up from the surgery or a very high probability that you're waking up from the surgery, it's, they don't want to fucking hear that. You know right. what I mean? Like it's, it's very, very different. Um, and, and it's not sexy to say that I don't know everything. There's nothing sexy about not knowing everything. So I understand. And again, this is, this is the issue with sales. That, that I have, which is why, I mean, even, even something like the podcast isn't, isn't blowing up the way we want because, or I shouldn't say the way we want, but the way we had hoped because we're not, we're not selling it the way we should be, you know? Like everything is all about sales and we're not doing it. We just fucking fuck sales. I hate it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it's, I, I took a path of creating content more for the practitioner than for the gen pop person. Yes. And I, and I, and I think that that for whatever reason worked for me to grow to where a lot of gen pop people. And so I started to not, not dumb things down, but, but, but use language that lay people could grasp onto, um, you know, but I think that for the people who are selling like Ben Patrick, to gem pop and that's their primary goal like strength coaches don't go to him to learn no you know yeah i i hope that strength coaches will come to what i do to maybe not my instagram content but other stuff that i do in general um you know that when you're doing content for other practitioners that's when you you're not going to garner enough respect and and be good at what you do if you don't express uncertainty um yeah you might be caldeach you might get a bunch of young people coming to come into like an RPR seminar or something like that. But, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not a longevity approach to providing information because also if you have a trick 
what happens once you teach the trick? Mm-hmm. Where do you go from there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm watching the, uh, the dope sick show on Apple TV right now, or, or maybe it's a Hulu original, but it's, it's about the Oxycontin. It's about the opioid, opioid ep- ep- epidemic and what Purdue Pharma was doing to sell Oxycontin and their answer to how they got from a 10 milligram Oxycontin pill all the way up to 160 milligram Oxycontin pill was that they had one trick, which was prescribed Oxycontin. And once their patients weren't getting the pain relief that they needed with that, they said, oh, we'll just double the dosage because they're having break, breakthrough pain. you know. And it's like the same answer over and over. Once they're at 40 and they have to double it to 80, oh, it's breakthrough pain. So there's no other pathway. There's no other. And, and that type of obviously that's sales and that's a billion dollar company that, you know, profited on the, 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 uh, everybody knows somebody that was affected by that, especially our age, yeah. you know? Um, I mean, I know people that, that anyways, so like when you try to provide this really simple answer, breakthrough pain or double the dosage or, Oh, just do that again. It's like, there's nobody to go from there. And, and I don't view that as interest. I don't view that as a long-term approach to, to the game, but yeah. Ben Patrick might be making, he's, he's made enough money right now that he'll be fine for the rest of his life. But a lot of people that are doing these kind of, these uh, guarantee sales tactics, like it might be working for them right now, but I, I don't know what they'll be doing in 10 years. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Looking I, and playing the long game. That I, I think about that all the time too, but it's also like you're also missing out on that little window, that chance to make that money, even though you know it's all this is is a trend, right? Like whatever it is you're doing right now, like even the adult population for, for personal training, holy fuck, five years ago, places were flooded, flooded with adults. Every, every gym became an adult training center. They, they, they started popping up. That's why the Orange Theories popped up. All, they said, mm-hmm. holy fuck, there's a place to make money. Now, post-COVID, it's like a dead zone. Yeah. Everything, uh, adult classes are substantially dwindled. Uh, I, so like, but if you didn't hop on that trend, then you wouldn't have had that money then. And now you're, right. you know, you're, you're yeah, missing yeah. out on whatever. So I, I don't know. It's, it's the ability to identify trends, which you clearly did with fucking Instagram. It's the ability to identify trends with, with everything, you know, what, yeah. whatever the hell it is, what's the next, next best thing. And you don't even know it until it already yeah. passes. Yeah. You can still guarantee, you can guarantee results and you can guarantee. How do you guarantee results? I, that's something I'm still not comfortable doing. Because if you do it, if you do the intervention or the program or the education, let's say you're selling education, if you, if you watch the lectures and you take notes and you consume it, you will see a improvement an adaptation, whether it's mental, physical, whatever we're talking about. So I think that that's fair. I just don't think that you have to say that yours is the end all be all. And I, I, I also think that there are enough people out there that do think this way, that there is a, there's room for it. That's for sure. I mean, yeah, if you're yes. playing on the global scale, yeah. you know, you can be ultra specific and you're, you're, there's more, there's enough people, no doubt about it. You, you might need but to know, label your things. Excuse right. me, but you might no, need to label no. or title them in a way that's more compelling or inspiring. Right. But it was like what you said at the beginning with the, the gym facility. Sorry, healthy baller. Is that what it's yeah. called? Mm-hmm. 
they were very specific on their niche. And I mean, that you can't go into, into these global markets unless you're super ultra specific. But I mean, even if you're a parrot trainer, um, you're going to be fine. You're going to make a killing, you know, it doesn't matter at all. So, um, and I know that a lot of these people, I mean, especially like Ben, 90% of most markets are beginners. So yes. going at beginners is the most lucrative way. And mm -hmm. that's the opposite of what you did as a mm -hmm. practitioner. And I'm sure, I mean, I don't know Ben that much. He's only been on it once, but I'm sure if he was to sit as a round table with us here, he probably would have a different like language on, with things, you know, and mm -hmm. this looks like this could lead to this and that. But yeah, I mean, at the end, he's, he's playing a game that he wants to win and, uh, it looks like he's doing pretty good right now. Be interesting if he ends up ever going on Rogan and then how big he gets for a little period of time. But then it would die out. It's like CrossFit. CrossFit, yeah. you know, like you said, yeah. Mike, everything's trends. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Let, let's let's cut it on that, boys. That was that was a good episode. Teddy, bro, thank you so much for hopping on. This was awesome. Yeah. I was, it was, it was I'm, I'm so on. impressed by you. Like you're, yeah. the, the wealth of knowledge that you have as a PT, I would absolutely send, I'd feel comfortable sending anyone to you without a doubt in my mind well i appreciate it i've uh i've followed your work for years and i it's awesome to to chat and connect and you know always talk to somebody let me do you have a what's what's a good buddy story can we end on that oh wow a good buddy story <laughs> yes. oh, i gotta i gotta think it's, i want i love connecting with buddy with people that have had the privilege and opportunity to learn from buddy <laughs> i'm i'm trying to think but a buddy story that I, I mean, he, this, this motherfucker, you want to talk about bo body positivity. This guy fat shames like no other. Um, there's, there's one universal constant motherfucker or anything times zero is always zero and fat stays fucking fat. If you are a fat 18 year old, you're going to be a fat fucking 36 year old the rest of your fucking life. Cause he just hates dealing with his fat lineman. But one of my, one of my favorite stories about buddy was, and, and I wasn't there for it. Uh, it, it happened almost right before I got there. Buddy hates computers, absolutely hates computers. Yeah. And he was struggling with tech. Uh, just uh, trying to fucking figure this shit out. This fucking technology is stupid fucking shit. Losing his mind. And I think it came down to the point where something happened with his phone. He couldn't figure out how to use his phone. So he ripped the phone cord out of the wall, ripped the phone out of the wall, phone cord and everything threw the phone on, on the gym floor, took a 45-pound plate, and proceeded to Donkey Kong <laughs> smash the 45-pound, the, the, the phone with the 45, and just fucking left it. And then someone came over. is like, buddy, I've been trying to fucking call you. Yeah, good luck, motherfucker. So, <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, apparently, they had to replace this guy's phone three or four times in the fucking season before <laughs> before they said hey buddy listen we're gonna start taking these out of your paycheck where you can't do this anymore <laughs> but when i was at buddy you want to talk about like compulsive behavior he uh you were talking about what, what food was he eating chocolate chip cookies and chocolate chip cookies was like his lunch dessert so he was on his bodybuilding kick when he was with me and every single day he would come in with chicken, rice, and honey mustard. And he would just mm -hmm. squeeze half the fucking <laughs> thing, half the bottle of honey mustard out onto that chicken and eat it every fucking day. 
every but you, James with the oats and the three scoops of, of whey protein. <laughs> it was spot on. It's the, he had the same fucking thing the entire time. I was, he still does the same thing. And he doesn't sure. cook, but I, I don't think he cooked the oats. I think he just put the, the oats in the shake and drank the shake and, and just chewed the oats. <laughs> I think it was just like the raw oats at that point. I've, I, I did that when I was competing powerlifting. They put weight on. <laughs> really? Oats and, yeah, oh yeah. Just oats in the oats in the shake, man. Put them in the blender. <laughs> oh, I used to do that all the time. I never cooked it. I, I'm not doing that shit anymore. Expanding your st- expanding your stomach. <laughs> oh. My favorite my favorite part about it though is every now and then you get an oat that there was still chocolate around, and then it was like a chocolate covered oat. That was the only <laughs> that, that, that was the only good part about it. Other than that, I'd sit there and. Yeah, just chew that as the worst, the fucking worst. (laughs) Teddy, thank you for coming on, bro. It was great to be on. Absolutely, we got to get you on again. Yeah, absolutely.